Some of the topics discussed on Blackbird, an advocacy podcast, are difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode four of Blackbird, an advocacy podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sarah, and my co-host, Dan, is sitting within six feet of me. It's okay, I washed my lungs. Luckily, we're married and uh, we can be close to one another, you know. I washed them anyway. Okay, well, good. I, I appreciate that. Flush my alveoli. Dan's an essential worker, so he has to be at work every day. I am not. So, I'm home every day. So, we just have to make sure that when he comes home, he's clean. Yes. <laughs> anyway, on to the show. First, we would like to wish a very happy Easter and Passover to everyone who celebrates. We are actually recording this on Easter Sunday, so happy, happy to everybody who celebrates the holidays. Eat lots, don't get sick. I mean... Okay, eat lots, and if you get a little sick, whatever, bro. Yeah, it's fine. I warned you. It's the holidays. Yes. You're allowed. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So from here until the end of the month, we will be covering cases and providing information regarding sexual assault. Due to the nature of the allegations in the case that we're about to discuss having to do with sexual assault, much of the information regarding the victims is not given and names will not be provided. Understanding that sexual assault can happen to anyone, anywhere, is key in knowing if you have been sexually assaulted you are not alone. It is important to know that wearing a short skirt or being a so-called tease or drinking too much are not invitations for someone to violate your body. Only you can give consent. And if consent is not given, it is indeed a violation. It is also important to understand that celebrities and high profile people can fall victim to this and can also be perpetrators. Sexual assault is not about sex. It is about control. Perpetrators want to take the control away from their victims. So even if a person has a ton of money or extreme good looks, he or she can still want the control. According to the Rape and Incest National Network, or RAIN, every 37 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. Yet only five out of every 1,000 perpetrators will end up in prison. We must speak up. We must take these cases seriously. We must believe those telling their stories. On March 18th, 2011, two women filed a criminal complaint with the Miami Beach Police Department, alleging they were possibly sexually assaulted after passing out at the perpetrator's condo on his couch and waking up to find their underwear missing. The women were in Miami for spring break and were students from the University of Georgia. The night before, the women had been brought to the perpetrator's condo by a mutual friend, and they had passed out on his couch. One of the women claimed she woke up to a man attempting to place his penis in her mouth, but pushed him away. She alleged when she woke up again, a man was lifting her dress. She immediately woke up her friend and told the mutual friend about the incident. Both women discovered their underwear was missing and were taken to the hospital by the mutual friend where they underwent rape examinations. On March 23, 2011, 
Miami Beach Police Department closed the investigation just five days after the incident. The Miami Beach Police Department's records show no evidence that the detective in charge of the case sent the rape kits for a detailed examination, had spoken to the alleged perpetrator, or had visited his condo where the alleged assault had taken place. So I bet you're wondering why this could be. And what do you think some reasons might be? I don't know. It's it's crazy to hear that. Like, this isn't some random, like, podunk town. This is Miami Beach, right? Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, it's not like you can say, you know, maybe they're just understaffed or they're just, you know, a quote-unquote, like, backwards area. Like, this is a progressive, modern, <clears throat> high, highly populated area of the country. So you, you don't really have that excuse. Like, they don't have the resources. Um, so it's, it's intentional neglect, unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with that. Well, the alleged perpetrator was NFL player Darren Sharper. He was a star safety for the New Orleans Saints and was an integral part in their victory at the 2010 Super Bowl against the Indianapolis Colts. Darren was untouchable. The survivors of this attack went to the hospital for rape examinations and the hospital itself called the Miami Beach Police to report possible sexual assault. Officer Alejandro Fernandez was dispatched to interview the two University of Georgia students regarding these allegations. They informed him they came to Miami on spring break and decided to go to Mansion, a nightclub that attracts the likes of Jay-Z, Britney Spears, and Diddy, or P. Diddy, or Puffy. Yeah, that guy. Sean Combs. There you go. Yep. At the club, they met Oscar Payano, a club promoter who knew a mutual friend of theirs, and he invited them to meet up with Darren Sharper. They obliged. I mean... Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who's going to pass up an opportunity (laughs) to meet a famous person? Yeah. Of course. (sighs) It is spring break in Miami, and you're going to do it up? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They accompanied him to some after parties for the NFL end of season. After partying and dancing the night away at the clubs, the women decided to go back to Darren's condo and the alleged assault ensued. Now, I am saying allegations because this case was unfortunately never tried, as mentioned earlier. I am in no way discrediting the survivor's stories or alluding to not believing them. I believe all survivors. I am using these words because in the eyes of the law, this case was never brought to true justice. And there's also something you should know about Oscar Payano, the man who introduced the women to Darren. While attending the University of Miami in 2009, he had been arrested after allegedly spitting on a woman during a confrontation. Police dropped the case and no charges were filed. And he is quoted as saying, a lot of women don't tell the truth. Wow. Sounds like a real stand-up guy. Right? Yeah. And for me, spitting on someone is like one of the lowest forms of violence. Yeah, I mean, I can I can tell you as a guy, uh, if a guy spits on me, he's asking me to punch him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> That's the same thing as saying, hey, would you mind punching me in the face? Yeah. 
hundred percent of the time. I just so. think, I mean, it's such a personal thing. You're spitting on someone. It's it's a bodily fluid. You don't know what's. It's degrading. It's very it's, degrading. It's, it's the same thing as you know urinating on someone. Yes. Except yeah, you I can't agree. necessarily urinate all the time. But what can you always do? You can always spit. One hundred percent. Though, uh, even with all of this against Oscar Piano, he did do the right thing that night. He brought the women immediately to the hospital to get their sexual assault forensic examinations. So what this examination entails is a full body exam to pick up any bodily fluids that the perpetrator may have left behind for possible DNA analysis, as well as looking for bruising or markings that could indicate an assault. I am a volunteer advocate for the emergency departments here on Long Island. So I've actually um, accompanied a lot of survivors to these examinations, so I've sat through them with them. Um, and I can tell you that it's an incredibly uncomfortable examination and it can actually take up to a few hours to perform. Um, there are a bunch of swabs that essentially um, the nurse who is performing the exam has to place in different areas of the body um, and then package them and then they all get taken in a box given to the police or you know police come to pick it up then it goes into um, evidence at um, the police department or an evidence locker or wherever you know evidence is held um, crime scene lab whatever um, so this is not something that is forced on women they have to accept taking the exam because again it is very uncomfortable and it is very invasive so if a woman says no i don't want to get the exam done then that's fine they they that's their prerogative they have that right to say no um if they do want it to be done they don't have to press charges right away in new york state we can actually hold on to a rape kit i believe for up to like 20 years it's something like that Okay, good. Um, yeah, there was new legislation like two, three years ago, something like that, because it used to be only a few years that they would hold on to them. So now we can hold on to them for much longer. So a, a, a victim or survivor has a much longer period of time to press charges um, if they don't want to right away. Sure, because I mean, that can be a scary proposition. Like, yes. You know, especially considering the nature of the incident, you know, if this, if this person exerted dominance over you in such a disgusting and personal way it can be a scary idea to confront them in any other arena whatsoever even a legal one you know yeah. even if you know exactly what happened you were 100 percent sound mind at the time and you know exactly what happened you know you could still just be thinking well, if i go to court with this person what if i lose Right. First of all, right off the bat, I'm going to become a pariah. Everyone's going to hate me and call me a liar and, and, and a slut. Because, well, clearly he didn't rape you, so that means that you just you just had sex and now you want to just get out of it. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, you're now a slut. Uh, and, you're a pariah, and you're a liar and you attacked this poor guy and tried to put him in jail to cover up your... Like, so... Sure, I can see, especially right after the incident, when you're still so flooded with emotions that you're like, well, I, I can't do this right now. Right. So let's collect the evidence, let's hang on to it, Yeah. and let's let's chill for a little bit, gather ourselves before we decide how we're going to proceed forward. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, been with survivors who literally don't even know if they've been assaulted. They 
are pretty sure something happened. They may have blacked out. So when they woke up, they were like, I don't know what happened. So there are times, too, where they're not sure if they even want to press charges because what if they're alleging something that never happened? So they're scared to make that mistake if it was indeed a mistake. But, you know, nine times out of ten, it's not a mistake. You know, generally a woman knows when something is not right with her body, especially. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing when you're when you're getting sick. You don't need a doctor to necessarily tell you you're getting sick. You wake up and you're like, oh, no. You can feel and, it. And you go into the bathroom and take your temperature, and sure enough, you knew it right away. So, yeah, and again, especially with the, the nature of that event and how traumatic it is physically, yeah, you're going to know. Right, exactly. Um, along with the physical examination and swabbing, a toxicological exam may also take place in order to see if there were any drugs in the survivor's system. Unfortunately, date rape drugs are all too common. We see things such as, you know, Rehypnol, which is roofies, uh, GHB. Um, you know, people are lacing drinks with, you know, sleep aids, um, benzodiazepines, you know, some Xanax or um, things like that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, this it- happens very frequently yeah i mean anything that can incapacitate a person it doesn't have to be something that's designed specifically for the purposes of committing a sexual assault i mean you could just stick visine in someone's drink to get them sick so that they're like oh i got i gotta run outside really quickly and if you know this particular bar maybe you know that there's a back door right there that this person is going to run out of and boom now you got them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, you're at a bar, everybody's drinking, so it's not like if you say, oh my God, I feel sick all of a sudden, everyone's going to be like, oh, let's go out with you in case something happens. They're just going to be like, oh, she had too much tequila. Mm-hmm. And you're going to, they assume you're just going to go outside, throw up. And if you're not back in 10 minutes, maybe you passed out and they'll come out and get you and bring you home. But 10 minutes is more than enough time if somebody is planning this in advance. Definitely. So it, it doesn't have to be some specialized compound. Anything that incapacitates a person puts you in power over them. Absolutely. Along with speaking with the survivors, Officer Fernandez also spoke with the nurse who performed the examination. He wrote in his report that the nurse stated she, quote, did not find any evidence of a sexual assault. However, in a later interview, the nurse stated that she, quote, would never say that. That's not my role. And again, as someone who knows firsthand what all of this is about that's not the nurse's role so i don't know if she said that when the officer interviewed her but it is not the nurse's role to say if she found any evidence because she can say i found bruising consistent with but she can't say there was definitely a sexual assault or there definitely wasn't a sexual assault. Right. Because she's not the forensic investigator. She's not the right. criminalist. She's not the person that's going to be right. testing these items that are in the forensic kit. Right. That's not her job. And if she does, that's a supposition and it's irresponsible. It is irresponsible. So <laughs> in my opinion, if someone who's performing this exam says to the police, I didn't find signs of this, the police should say, okay, well, thank you for your information and still take that rape kit bring it to evidence and have the crime lab test it because as the officer you should know it's not the nurse's job 
it was the nurse's job to do the examination, to perform examination, administer medication if necessary. After that, it gets handed over to the police. It's now the police's, it's in chain, chain of custody, chain of custody. Right. It's now in the police's hands. It's now their responsibility to take care of any forensic evidence. Right. And it's, so, just, it's just chain of professional expertise, too. That, you too. Know, it's, yes. It's, like we said, the, the, the medical personnel, especially something like a nurse, they're not trained specifically to make a determination like that. Correct. There are people who work for the police force and work for the county or the state or whatever who are specifically trained to make these determinations. Correct. You know, it's not about being a, a good person and having the skills and, well, we all know what happened here. That's, that's not what life really is. Mm -hmm. Life is really, here's a person who's trained to do this thing professionally. Leave it to the pros. Right. If the nurse has a professional opinion, that's one thing. But again, it's an opinion. It's not fact. She's not stating fact this person was sexually assaulted or fact this person was not sexually assaulted based on me looking at her and swabbing her mouth. How are you supposed to know that? Sexual assault comes in many forms. There are sometimes no visible means of detecting that there was a sexual assault. Right. So you can't just look at a person and go, oh, yep, they were or were not sexually assaulted. You can't right. do that. And I would imagine that, you know, for lack of a better word, the good ones are probably very good at specifically that, at not leaving marks. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean... So as mentioned before, Officer Fernandez made no note of having interviewed Darren Sharper. He made no note of having searched or even visited Darren Sharper's condo. Nor did he put the sane examination performed at the hospital into evidence or request to get it tested. Five days after the report, Officer Fernandez closed the case at the advice of his superiors. And it now sits at the Miami Beach Police Department as a, quote, miscellaneous incident. Detective Ernesto Rodriguez of the Miami Beach PD was quoted by ProPublica as writing in an email to them, quote, The women involved never said they were sexually assaulted, nor was there any physical evidence. The officers consulted with a detective, and based on the lack of evidence of a crime, they all concluded that no further action could be taken by the department. Yeah, so they just, they just didn't care. They just didn't want to deal with it. Yep. You know, whether they, whether they truly believed that there was some work to do there or not, they chose not to do the work. And whether that's just sheer laziness and neglect or whether it's intentional neglect, like we said before, we can't, we can't speak to that. We can only speculate. But either way, clearly the effort was not put in. Correct. Fast forward now to 2013 in September. Detective Derek Williams of the New Orleans Police Department received a phone call from a local hospital that a woman there was reporting she had been raped. She said she was out clubbing, drank a lot, met a man, and went back to his house. She awoke the next morning with the man on top of her, naked, and she said she never consented. This survivor was a former New Orleans Saints cheerleader, and the perpetrator? It should be no surprise now that it was Darren Sharper. So now two years later. Wow. In a completely different state. Right. So that shows, that clearly shows a history of willingness to do something like this. And 
not that I'm ever forgiving an event like this, but when somebody does something once ever in their entire life, again, I'm not saying they can be forgiven for it, but, you know, everybody poops. You know, we all make mistakes in life sometimes, but if you, let's say, uh, if you blow a red light, and it's the first time you've ever blown a red light, and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. What a dumb thing to do. All right, you can be forgiven for blowing a red light. But the next time that you blow a red light, it's like now you're showing a pattern. So you don't really think it's a bad thing to do. You think it's an okay thing to do. And that scales up all the way to something like this, where it's like, again, not that I'm ever saying there's any justification for the action, but the first time that you do something, you may accept that it was a wrong thing to do. The second time that you do it, that goes straight out of the water. You now think that this is an okay thing to do. And it can, will never be believable that you thought, no, this was a bad thing. If you knew it was a bad thing, you wouldn't have done it a second time. Tony Stafford, a managing partner of a bar near Bourbon Street, saw this survivor stumbling around the club looking as though she was sleepwalking. Tony saw Darren Sharper sitting in the corner and inquired about the woman. He informed Tony that she was okay and that he was taking her back to his apartment. Darren said, quote, she's on the potion. She's ready. He then took the woman by the hand and left with her. Tony was uncomfortable with this statement and told ProPublica, quote, he was going home with a zombie. Tony then called a friend of his who happened to be a deputy sheriff. Brandon Licciardi, who also knew Darren. Licciardi went to Darren's apartment to do a welfare check on the woman and said he found the woman lying flat in Darren's bed. He said another woman, as well as one of Darren's friends, were also in the apartment. According to the report given to police, Licciardi said Darren pushed him away and said, quote, dude, I got this. Y'all go home. Everything's fine. I'ma bring her home but everything wasn't fine. The next morning, the woman called Tony and he convinced her to go to the hospital for a SANE exam. Thankfully, in this case, Detective Williams followed up. He received a warrant to collect a DNA sample from Darren and DNA was collected through the SANE exam. New Orleans PD found a match. Darren's DNA matched that of the DNA swabbed from the survivor. There were also eyewitnesses who said they saw Darren with the intoxicated survivor at the club as well as at his condo. However, New Orleans PD did not want to rush to an arrest as this was a very high profile case. And just like in Miami Beach, the New Orleans Inspector General found that a lot of the forcible rape cases in New Orleans were labeled as miscellaneous incidents or unfounded. This led to less reports of forcible rape to the FBI. Which is ridiculous because by definition it's not miscellaneous. Miscellaneous means it can't be categorized. Correct. These are clearly easy to categorize. Yes. They are sexual assaults. Right. Period. Right. How is that miscellaneous? Exactly. Because it's just miscellaneous is just the folder that you throw cases in when you want them to go right. cold. It's the default when you're just like, eh, I don't feel like dealing with this. Right. I mean, I hear so many times that um, when it comes to, you know, things like homicides, Sometimes police will actually say, uh, no, we're just going to rule this a suicide because they don't want to deal with it being a homicide. They don't want to go through the investigation. And I've heard this over and over again from people who are in the field. 
So like which they is, don't want to do their jobs. Which sometimes. is nuts because because now there's a person who is willing to commit murder and you know this. Yes. You know that there's a murderer and you're not going to do anything to prevent this person from committing another murder. Right. And exactly the same thing in this case. There's right. clearly a serial predator who is violating women. Two police departments now have found out about this, yet they're like yeah, no, it's not anything of importance. We're just going to rule it a miscellaneous and put it away. So now right. they're just allowing him to continue right. doing this to women. And, like, you know, is this the kind of thing that they're just doing? Again, we can only speculate this is our motivation, but are they just doing it because, A, they don't want to deal with it, or, B, they're extremely chauvinist and say, well, it's a woman's job to be used in that way, so whatever. Uh, is it because they're just fans of the saints and they don't want to take one of their heroes down? Is it because he has money and he's bought people out? You know, unfortunately, we won't know because these are the kinds of things that never get investigated. Right. Because it's it's one of the easiest things to corrupt in our system, full of things which are easy to corrupt. And it could be any or all of those. Right. Uh, it, there are a multitude of reasons why police don't, do what they're supposed to do and it's unfortunate because these are the people that out of our own tax dollars we're paying to serve and protect yep they're the ones who we are supposed to rely on and trust to know that they're taking care of us and they're keeping us safe and that's not happening in this case at all right. and this is multiple police departments in multiple states this isn't just one police department in one state, like you mentioned earlier. It's not some, like, podunk town. These are right. big police forces. Major urban centers yes. full of potential victims. Yep. Yep. So these fumbles, no pun intended, by the police in these cases led to more allegations of rape perpetrated by Darren Sharper. On October 30th, 2013, so now this is a month later, Darren was at a club in Los Angeles where a friend introduced him to two women. On their way to an after party, Darren told the women he needed to stop by his hotel to pick something up. He invited them up to his suite and provided them with shots of tequila. Soon after, both women blacked out and one awoke the next morning in Darren's bed, naked, with him assaulting her. The other woman woke up on the couch, interrupted Darren and the survivor in the bedroom, and both women fled the hotel. According to police reports, the shots Darren had given them were spiked with Zolpidem, which is the generic form of Ambien. Eight days later, one of the women filed a report to the local police department. Due to there being no serious injury, no MO, and no fingerprints or other evidence, the police deemed this a low-priority report the officer who was taking the report had a checklist was checking off and because none of these could be checked off it was low priority which is ridiculous because unless both of these women who tested positive for ambien unless both of these women take ambien regularly they were drugged that's a fact if you have a substance in your system which you do not have a history of putting in your system it means someone put it in your system and that doesn't take a lot to connect that yeah 
However, about two weeks later, the police finally followed up, but never collected any DNA and did not issue any arrest warrant for Darren. And similarly to the New Orleans case, had these officers and detectives called the prior residences of Darren Sharper, namely Miami Beach, they would have found out that more allegations of sexual assault were filed against him, and maybe more care would have been taken to pursue justice for these survivors. Instead, it only allowed a serial perpetrator to continue committing violations against women. On November 20th, 2013, so again, another month later, Darren traveled to Phoenix, Arizona to meet a friend, a 21-year-old Arizona State University student. The woman invited Darren back to her apartment where she lived with another Arizona State student. The woman, another female friend, and Darren decided to hit the town. According to police reports, the woman got sick at the nightclub and they all returned back to her apartment. Her roommate carried her into her bedroom, changed her into her pajamas, and left her to sleep it off on her bed. Upon coming back out into the kitchen, the roommate saw Darren, now in his boxers, having prepared what he called frat shots for the two women. He insisted they drink them. One downed it, while the other drank only half. The woman who had taken the whole shot passed out within minutes. So Darren and the other woman placed her on the couch. The woman who had only taken half her shot felt a little woozy and decided to go to her bedroom where she locked the door behind her. She admitted to her boyfriend over the phone that she felt, quote, dizzy and had lost control of her motor functions and her muscles felt weak. She left her bedroom to splash some water on her face in her bathroom, and while on her way there, she noticed Darren thrusting into the body of the woman on the couch. She told police she was unsure and couldn't tell if the woman was conscious or not, or if she was even witnessing a sex act. The next morning, all three women confronted Darren about the previous night, and he said he had no recollection about what happened. Convenient. He left the apartment, and the three women went to the local hospital, where two underwent SANE exams. One exam showed injuries consistent with sexual intercourse. The police were called. The police searched the apartment where the alleged assault took place. Okay, we're getting somewhere in this Uh, one. This police department's doing the right thing. somebody, Somebody went to work. Yep. They collected bottles, used cups, one of which still had remnants of the drink Darren mixed, a rug couch cushions, clothing, and a broken pink pill. A few days later, the Tempe police set up a phone call between one of the women and Darren, which would be recorded, but she received no usable information from the call. But you see, they're putting forth effort. They're trying to get information for their investigation. They're trying to actually bring a perpetrator to justice. Right. Unlike these other police departments. Right. And and either way that it goes, don't you want to come to a conclusion based on good work and, and legitimate evidence? I mean, even if a woman is totally making a story up, had totally consensual sex with a guy or a whoever, and then it, just because she's a bad person is deciding to try to get this person arrested, wouldn't you rather come to that conclusion based on good evidence rather than just the lack thereof. Yeah. Yeah. Do your jobs. Do your jobs. That's how you're going to find out that 
something is or isn't there. And now you can say, we went through all the processes, all the procedures that we needed to. We covered all bases. We did our due diligence. And we found X, Y, or Z. Do right. your jobs. That's what you're there for. Right. Evidence from the apartment, as well as evidence from the toxicological screening and DNA, sat in the police locker for weeks. And as seen before, no one from the Tempe Police Department looked into Darren's background, allowing Darren to continue his spree. So they collected all of this evidence and then just put it away. In the miscellaneous folder again? Probably. 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 Yeah, the miscellaneous shelf in the evidence locker. So now we come to January 14th, 2014. Two months later. After attending a Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition party at a hotel in L.A., two women decided to go to a club with Darren. This is the same club where he met one of the women he previously perpetrated against. On the way, he used the same ruse as he's used before that he needed to pick something up from his hotel. Both women went into his bathroom, and upon exiting, he greeted them with mixed drinks that he said were vodka cranberries. They told him they did not want any, but he of course insisted. Ten minutes after drinking the odd-tasting drinks, the women were both unconscious. They woke up the next morning, and one of the women felt pain and burning in her vagina. So again, women know when something's not right with their bodies. Right. She knew, waking up, something's not okay here. I feel different. They decided to go to the Santa Monica Rape Crisis Center around midnight the following night. The next day, they filed a report with LAPD. The same detective who got the report from Darren's first assault in L.A. also got this one. And finally, alarm bells went off. And finally, an arrest warrant was issued. But Darren had already fled California to Las Vegas, where he met up with two women and a man. They all went back to Darren's room, where he made drinks for them, and after drinking the mixed drinks, they all were unconscious. One woman remembered waking in the middle of the night to Darren on top of her, naked. The other woman felt as though she had had sex, but could not recall. And the man, he woke up in the hotel lobby, with no recollection of how he even got there. Both women went to a local hospital and got SANE exams. Darren Sharper had drugged and raped four women within a 24-hour period. That's insane. Four states, as many as 16 women, fumbling police, unseen evidence. That's where this case has brought us. One case, they didn't even want to put it forward. One case got some evidence, hot, too high profile, we're not going to do anything with it. Another police department gets all of this evidence that they could be testing and then just leaves it in their evidence locker. Then we have another case in the same precinct, the same jurisdiction as one of the earlier cases, and that's how they're finally putting two and two together. But look at all the women 
that he's violated right. along the way. This right. could have all been stopped right. way early on. If the first case had been handled correctly, exactly. there would be however many other people who did not have to go through this horrible experience. Exactly. Exactly. Upon arriving back in L.A., Darren was arrested on January 17th, 2014. Finally. Finally. <laughs> After news broke of his arrest, another woman came forward in Miami to say Darren had raped her in 2012. But Miami-Dade police decided not to file any charges, and the Miami Beach police did not reopen the 2011 case. Ready for it? The rape kits had been destroyed. Destroyed? Yeah. Not even just lost or purged from evidence because of nope. the schedule involved. They had been destroyed. Yep. They closed the case. They weren't do it was miscellaneous. Why do we need these? Wow. Like why bother going through the process of destroying them? It's not like these things take up whole rooms. You know? They take up a couple of cubic feet yeah, it's on a shelf somewhere. A rape kit box is like I don't know. How big would you say that is? A lunchbox? Yeah, kind of actually. <laughs> yeah. If they're not big boxes. They don't, like you said, they don't take up a lot of room. Right. So it's not costing the, the county a whole lot to keep these things, no. but it costs you money to destroy them. They said that they had contacted the victim in the 2011 case, and she told them she did not have reason to believe she had been sexually assaulted by Darren. So nothing came of it. So they didn't believe her in the first place years before when she first came to them because they put it under miscellaneous. So why would she think they wanted to help her now? Right. If they contact her a couple years later after they basically told her we're not doing anything about this, why would she at that point say, oh, yes, please help me? Right. Like She's I, thinking in her head, you didn't help me before. Why should I trust you now? Right. And maybe she just doesn't even want to revisit the whole thing. She's spent however many months or years this has been now getting over this. I mean, you have to understand that this isn't, this isn't the kind of thing yep. that goes away after a week. Having <sighs> to go through the process over and over and over and over and talk to however many officers, detectives, lawyers, friends even, advocates, whoever it is, you're re-victimizing practically. Like, they have to go through that night over and over and over. And, you know, we don't know what the two years were like for her. For at this point she may not that she forgot about it but she may have been able to overcome what had happened to her and get past that time in her life so when they're coming to her now saying hey what happened back then in her mind she could just be trying to suppress it absolutely. because she doesn't want to go through that trauma again absolutely even with this downfall investigations into the other cases ramped up Tempe police obtained Darren's phone records, collected victim medical records, and obtained lab results matching Darren's DNA to DNA on one of the women's leggings. On March 11th, 2014, an arrest warrant was out for Darren. New Orleans PD stepped up their investigation too, even calling in one of their drug investigators and two FBI agents to chase a drug angle. Because... Well, do you remember Brandon Licciardi, the deputy sheriff who went to check on the welfare of the former cheerleader in Darren's apartment? Yeah, 
he wasn't exactly what he claimed. Lickyardi originally met Darren when he was hired as security for an event. Lickyardi allegedly trafficked in drugs, worked for a gambling operation collecting marks, and sent out text messages bragging about beating his girlfriend until she was unable to walk, according to court testimony. How do you even how do you even do that? Like how do you like ah, I I just can't. I can't even imagine that regardless of male on female, male on male, female on female, how can you be so proud of yourself for physically harming someone who is weaker than you? I, I would assume in this case, right. you know. Usually that's how these things go. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's like that's like you know, playing a sport against someone who's just terrible at the sport and, and bragging about how you crushed that person. Like, how does that even feel good to you? Like, that didn't take any skill. You didn't show how great you are at that sport. So so how does it feel good to win a fight against someone who wasn't even fighting and who wasn't a fighter? That doesn't that doesn't prove anything about you. Except so, that you're a horrible person. Except that you're a piece of garbage. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I hope one day... You're in the opposite situation where you're in a fight against someone who's that much better than you, and hopefully when you go to jail, you will be. Lickyardi grew so out of control that his estranged mother confided to a friend, quote, we have raised a monster, according to court testimony. Jeez. He allegedly served as, as Darren's source of women and drugs. He was accused of sending women to Darren after drugging them with Ambien, Xanax, MDMA, among others. There's so much about Lickyardi that maybe we'll do a whole episode to get dedicated to him <laughs> at some point. Because there's a multitude of things we could talk about with him. And it's just so much to put in this, this episode. So maybe someday down the line we'll was he was we'll do he, a whole episode on him. You know, and I'm putting this in quotes, mm -hmm. working with other people. Yes. Yeah, so that's gonna have to be a whole episode on the show. Yes. <laughs> in December twenty fourteen, Darren, Lickyardi, and another alleged accomplice were indicted. <laughs> so we now have him on charges in California, Louisiana, Arizona, and Nevada. He was also brought up on federal charges in Louisiana. A federal grand jury in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana returned an indictment for conspiracy to distribute a controlled substance, one count, and distribution of a controlled substance, two counts. Darren Sharper entered a global plea deal for all counts in order to get more lenient punishments. Had he not and he went to trial and had been convicted in Louisiana, he would have been facing life in prison. Well, that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a nice thing to hear that, that the penalties are at least fitting of the that crime. That strict, yes. But he was able to take this plea deal. Right. So he got off easy. He appeared in court in Los Angeles on March 23rd to enter guilty pleas to sexual assault in Arizona by video conferencing and no contest in California to raping two women he knocked out with a potent sedative mixed with alcohol. The Arizona judge sentenced him immediately to nine years in prison with no chance for early release. 
On November 29th, 2016, Sharper was sentenced to 20 years in prison by Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Michael Pastor. Sharper's plea deal allows serving half that time, minus time already served. As a nonviolent criminal, Sharper might also be eligible for parole since raping an intoxicated person is a nonviolent crime in the state of California at that time. That does not make any sense. That's that's how a ridiculous is that, thing. How is that not violent? You are forcing someone to do something against their will. Right. And and furthermore, if you're if the idea is well, it's not like he punched this person to knock them out, he used drugs. Right, but then he thrust a part of his body forcibly into the other, into a part of the other person's body. Correct. That is, by definition, violence. Even if it's consensual, yeah. it's a violent act. And so to, it's a violent crime when it's not consensual. To be honest with you, in the medical world, when people are given chemical substances to um, sedate them, that's considered a chemical restraint. Right. So if you're giving somebody a drug to make them unconscious... You are technically restraining them. Sure. So that they can't do anything. They can't fight back. Right. How is that not violent? You're giving them something so that they cannot fight back. That, to me, is violence. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. On March 24th, 2015... Sharper pleaded guilty to a single count of attempted sexual assault on two women in Las Vegas. He agreed to serve three to eight years for this crime. Three to eight years. That's like... uh, That's less than you get for stealing a car. Yeah. Or drugs. Yeah. Smoking, carrying marijuana. I mean, like... it's true. It's It's true. He was formally sentenced on October 27th, 2016. On May 29th, 2015, Sharper pleaded guilty in federal court to conspiracy to distribute alprazolam, diazepam, and zolpidem with intent to commit rape and two counts of distributing these substances with intent to commit rape. He accepted a nine-year sentence in a plea deal for all the charges against him. However, on February 18th, 2016, U.S. District Judge Jane Triche Milazzo, I think that's how you pronounce it, rejected the deal saying, quote, this court cannot accept this plea agreement and noted that a federal pre-sentence report called for a range of 15 to 20 years. On March 22nd, 2016, Judge Triche Milazzo approved a new deal under which the proposed length of imprisonment fits the above range. On August 18th, 2016, Sharper was sentenced to 220 months, which is 18 years and four months of incarceration, followed by three years of supervised release and a $20,000 fine. The following week, he was sentenced by a Louisiana state judge to 20 years in prison, stemming from three counts of rape. All imprisonments will run concurrently. Of course. Of course. Which means he's only going to serve the longest... The maximum sentence, Yes, right. exactly. It doesn't mean everything's being added on top of each other. Right. Once out of prison, Sharper must register as a sex offender and comply with a sex treatment condition as part of the three-year supervision program. 
Court records list the total of nine victims involved nationwide. But according to the judge, there may be as many as 16. In 2018, Darren's attorneys argued that he was not adequately, adequately advised by his previous attorneys on the consequences of his guilty plea. Huh. But U.S. District Judge Jean Triche Malazzo denied the motion. She wrote, quote, This court believes that Sharper's claim that he did not know the terms of his plea agreement and that his attorneys had not counseled him regarding the agreement is merely an attempt to avoid the harsh consequences of his actions. So he remains in prison. Good. Yeah, you know, it's funny because people think that if your lawyer doesn't tell you that you're doing something wrong, that you're okay. But that's any any good attorney will tell you that's simply not the case. No. You you cannot use the excuse my lawyer didn't tell me. Right. <laughs> Ignorance of the law in any capacity, unless obviously you are a minor or, you know, you have a, a mental defect, whatever it is like that. But ignorance of the law in any other normal capacity is not an adequate defense. Right. It's just like if you if you have someone handling your taxes, like all the time we hear about these uh, celebrities and movie stars and whatnot who didn't pay taxes for 20 years. Guess what? Those people still go to jail. Yeah. Even if they attempt the, well, I had someone handling it for me, it's still on you. Now, that guy may also go to jail if he violates the terms of his licensure in that state, but you're still going to jail or you're still going to be required to pay that money back mm -hmm. for defrauding, you know, and it's the same thing in legal terms. If you are engaging in some kind of business dealings which are illegal, it doesn't matter if your lawyer tells you it's all good. It's your responsibility to know better mm -hmm. you know and and if you suspect something's going on you contact another attorney and ask that attorney you know it's it's you still go to jail if you break the law Correct. doesn't matter if little timmy down the street told you it was okay right. when we talk about reasons that survivors don't report it is far more likely that someone who has been sexually assaulted does not report it to law enforcement than it is for someone to make false claims about being sexually assaulted. You know, we hear so many times that a victim or survivor comes forward and people don't believe her or, or him. And it's like, well, how many times have you actually seen someone claim they were sexually assaulted when they really weren't? How many times do we see that happen? Not a lot. Right, and I was thinking about that earlier. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's so it, it's easy for people to say like, "Oh, yeah, you know, this person just got wasted, made a mistake, and now they're trying to, you know, get out of the shame of mm -hmm. it." But like, realistically, how often do you hear about that happening? Pretty much never. Right. Not unless you watch certain news channels. <laughs> We're not gonna go there. Only 230 out of every 1,000 sexual assaults are reported to police. That's roughly 23% that are reported, and 77% go unreported. Right, so three times as many as actually get dealt with, whether they come to a, a just resolution or not. Only one-third actually even have the chance to go to a just resolution. And then three times that many. Mm -hmm. 
Don't even report. Yeah, don't, don't even, even report. Don't, don't even get the chance. They don't even say anything. We need law enforcement to take these cases and claims seriously. Too many survivors are not able to seek justice for fear of being not believed or being persecuted themselves. Of survivors asked why they did not report their sexual assault, 20% feared retaliation and 13% believed the police would not do anything to help. Which, frankly, I'm surprised that that's only 13%. Yeah. I mean, these are people who are self-reporting, so, you know, they they could... There was a number, I think it was like 30% or something, that no, they didn't cite anything. Mm-hmm. So it, that could right. be a higher number. And they just don't want to say it because... Because of retaliation. They fear retaliation. <laughs> exactly. 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 Furthermore, in this case, these survivors never had the opportunity to testify against their rapist because he took a plea deal. Not all jurisdictions have requirements to speak with accusers regarding plea deals, so a lot of the time the accusers don't even know until they hear it on the news, or possibly that someone contacts them after the fact. So, should accusers have a say? I think so. I think that they should at least be informed that something like this is going to happen. And I think that, you know, there's a portion where um, victims do like a victim impact statement. They'll do that for like sentencing. I think that sometimes that should happen with a plea deal as well. I think that there should be a part of the procedure where a victim can come forward and explain to the judge this is what happened to me and this is how it impacted me and they can all then come to a resolution and say yes we want to go forward with the plea deal or we don't want to go forward with the plea deal you know a lot of times the accuser will say yes to a plea deal because they don't want to even testify they don't want to go through the trial which again, because it's re-victimizing them. They're just going through, they're going through your trauma again. So sometimes they'll just say, no, just do it. But then there are other times where they didn't even get the chance. They weren't even told. So, uh, you know, from your your perspective, like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, if a person is willing to go through it, like you said, I mean, it's, it's not going to change the story you know so it can't hurt to have the information come forward again and refresh everybody's memory about that this is a person this isn't just what it says on the court documents that there's you know there is there is a human being behind these allegations so yeah absolutely you should be able to plea your case as many times as you want you Mm -hmm. should be able to to, to seek that help as loudly as you wish. Yeah. If you or someone you know has been a victim or survivor of sexual assault, you can reach out for help at rain.org. R-A-I-N-N dot org. Or you can call them at 1-800-656-HOPE, which is 4673. And that concludes episode four of Blackbird. 
If you have a story you would like to share on Blackbird, please email us at blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com. And don't forget to stop by and follow us on Instagram at blackbirdadvocacy. For all references used in this episode, please see the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, Blueberry, I think that's what it's called, Blueberry, uh, Pocket Casts, pretty much most places you're going to find podcasts, we are there. So please subscribe, and please give us a five-star review, that would be really nice. We like stars. We do. And you can also leave comments. So, you know, if you think that something can be improved or you think that we're just like the most fantastic people in the world, which I hope that's more of what we get, um, you can leave a comment and let us know if you love us or Or whatever. If if you don't like hearing our dog snore, (laughs) let us know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our pug is in the background snoring right now. Sorry. He's got some nose issues. So anyway, be safe, be aware of your surroundings and your drinks, and continue to social distance if you can. And remember to wash your lungs. Yes. Lungs need to be washed. You know, after you wash your hands. I mean, you should all be washing your hands. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. That's the CDC recommendation. 20 seconds. And that doesn't account... For, you know, the soap and all that stuff. Like, actually lathering and, like, putting the soap everywhere, that's the 20 seconds. So right. don't start counting as soon as you turn the water on. That, that, that doesn't count. I mean, look, who wants to go back to work anyway? Just wash your hands for 10 minutes. <laughs> yes, that works too. Flatten the curve. Thank you.